Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, September 15th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Melissa and I have spent the past week at the home of Clifton Emmerheiser, and with the help of many friends, packing his library and computers in order to move him to Florida, and going through all of his papers, which he's had stored for years, in order to determine what items of import we should preserve. We hope to leave Ohio on Tuesday morning. It was Monday when I wrote this. And it will probably take three days to drive home as we <clears throat> do not want to subject Clifton to too many hours on the highway at one time. Clifton has had countless correspondences and unfortunately it is just not feasible to save most of them. They would only sit in boxes forever. He also has countless books and pamphlets and we are packing the greater portion of them. If I had to guess, we will be transporting a literal ton of books, which are already packed into many dozens of large cartons. At first I thought we could move only the essential materials with a single 6x12 trailer, and now we have also rented a 15-foot U-Haul truck. Of course, Clifton is well, and we have his help with this endeavor, even if he cannot pack and move the boxes himself. One night earlier this week, going through some of the cartons of old ministry-related letters and papers, which we brought up from Clifton's basement, I found a letter which... which Clifton had written to Ted Wyland in June of 1997. I somehow doubt that it is the first letter which Clifton had written to Wyland. And there were a couple of others, but this is the earliest letter which we found. Here, because it is related to this topic of two seed lines, and because Clifton has been addressing Wyland throughout this series, we are going to read Clifton's 1997 letter. This is dated Saturday, June 28th, 1997. And it's written to Mission to Israel in Scotts Bluff, Nebraska, to the attention of Ted Wyland. This is not... Clifton says, this is not a letter of cordial greetings. As a matter of fact, this is a declaration of war. Right out in front, I want to brand you exactly what you are. A liar, Clifton getting off to a good footing with Mr. Wyland. All of this nonsense about did she or didn't she I have listened to most of your presentation on this subject. Don't get me wrong. This is not an attempt to convert you. 
For Yahweh has evidently blinded your eyes so that Israel might see. Evidently you have been predestined by Yahweh, like the Pharaoh of Romans chapter 9, to be a vessel of wrath. So therefore, there is nothing I could do or say to convince you that you are wrong. I had to tell another man last October, Scott Vaught, that he was a liar. And now I am telling you the same thing. And of course we are now persuaded that to be predestined as a vessel of wrath, one must be a bastard. And perhaps that may be what Clifton insinuated even back then. We can't read his mind. As for Scott Vaught, in 1996 Clifton had attended a Christian Christian identity event in Loudoun, Tennessee, where Scott Vaught had spoke. Vaught was traveling in the same circles as the now-deceased pastor Eugene Buddy Johnson and the internet slob troublemaker, as he calls himself, Russell Walker. These were the three musketeers of what we now call the Ephraim Scepter Heresy. And they also typically confused the Jews for the tribe of Judah. Shortly thereafter, those two errors were addressed by Clifton in a privately circulated paper titled The Lies of Scott Vaught, which has never been posted to his website or to the internet at all as far as I know. Many of Clifton's arguments were later refined and republished as a series of papers titled The Ephraim Scepter Heresy. Returning to Clifton's remarks to Ted Wyland, he continues and says, For your lies, Yahweh will judge. But it was a little too late for Korah and Achan when they found out that they were wrong. It's too bad their families had to suffer also. Clifton will sh- I'm sorry, Yahweh will show you that you are wrong. Maybe it will be only for a few seconds, but he will show you and you will know. Yahweh always warns, I am sending you proof with this mailing that you are wrong on the two-seed-line truth. When Israel finally recognizes the truth of two-seed-line, They will hiss at the name of Ted R. Wyland. I am sending you my notes of the presentation I gave on the two trees of Gen- I'm sorry, on the trees of Genesis, plus a postscript, an article I wrote, The Problem with Genesis 4-1, and George M. Lambs' interpretation of the idioms of Genesis chapter 2 verse 9 and verse 17 and a passage from Jesenius's Hebrew and Chaldee lexicon of the Old Testament, and a passage from the Protovangelion, chapter 10, of the lost books of the Bible and the forgotten books of Eden. Clifton writes his concluding paragraph and says, I want to warn you, I am not through with you yet. This is a war. I will chew up this stupidity of Eve, did she or didn't she, and spit it out in little pieces. We could tell Clifton's just a little bit upset. I will expose you for the damned fool, and I know the seriousness of this charge, 
the damn fool that you are. I don't usually use this kind of language, but in your case, I will make an exception. I have warned you, your blood is off of my hands. May Yahweh use this letter and materials in whatever way he chooses. Signed, Clifton Emmeheiser. Now this letter raises some questions, which I shall answer here as best as I can. Clifton began his Watchman's teaching letters and his prison ministry in May of 1998, and it would still be some years before his papers would be regularly published on the Internet. But here we see that Clifton was addressing Ted Wyland in 1997, 11 months before he began his ministry. When Clifton began writing his teaching letters, his first topic was a lengthy series on Judah, before he changed gears and did another lengthy series on Egypt, and then moved on to other subjects later. For the most part, Wyland was not addressed until the end of 2001, when Clifton began writing this series of special notices. Although in late 1999, Clifton published a paper titled, A King James Version Bible with a Good Center Reference, Teaches and Proves to Seedline. Here Clifton also mentions a paper titled, The Problem with Genesis 4.1. But this is not a reference to the paper by that title, which is currently published on his website. The paper which is now extant was not written until June of 2003. Originally, the 2003 essay was titled, The Problem with Genesis 4.1 Reconsidered, because Clifton had issued a much earlier paper by the same title, which was also only circulated privately. It is that older paper to which Clifton refers here in this 1997 letter to Ted Wyland, and I have not found any copies of it as of this time. There are still a few drawers and cabinets left to empty. As for me, it was not until October of 1997, even after this letter was written, that I even heard of Christian Identity and I did not come, become a correspondent of Clifton's until perhaps mid-1999. I began proofreading for him perhaps around January of 2000. Clifton could not, I'm sorry, yes, Clifton could not have known in 1997 that he would even start a ministry of his own, as he wrote in the opening paragraph of his first Watchman's teaching letter in May of 1998 that, anyway, I hope I can get this teaching letter out once a month. I am in the process of starting a teaching ministry since I came down with a heart attack. On February 6th of 1998, I have dedicated the rest of my life, at least what there is of it, and... That was Clifton's comment 19 years ago to full-time writing for the Almighty. We pray that he still has some years left to write. So we see that not only was Clifton resolved to countenance 
the lives of Ted Wyland even before he started his ministry. But Yahweh then gave him the means to do it. And now his writings are featured on the two largest and most visited Christian identity websites on the internet for nearly 10 years running, which are Christagenia and Israel Elect. For the greater part of the Christian identity community, Clifton certainly has fulfilled his promise to chew up the folly of Ted Wyland and spit it out in little pieces. With this, we shall begin our presentation of Clifton Emmerheiser's special notice to all who deny Two Seed Line Part 18. And he begins by saying, It is of the utmost importance that once that it once more be loudly proclaimed that we are at war. We have been at war since the account in Genesis 3, with verse 15 identifying the conflicting parties as the children of the serpent and the children of the woman. While we are at the very zenith of that battle, the anti-sea liners are actually aiding and abetting the enemy on the opposing side and use some of the most outlandishly unrealistic arguments for their treasonous conduct. And Clifton is not going too far here because we as a race are embroiled in a war between Yahweh our God and his enemies which is explained very clearly in Revelation chapter 12 when we ourselves engaged and mingled with those enemies, as it is described in both Genesis chapters 3 and 6, we assured our own participation in that war. When supposed Christian pastors refuse to identify those enemies or acknowledge that they even exist, they themselves must be counted among our enemies. As Yahshua Christ had said, He that is not with me against is against me, and he that gathers not with me scatters. So Clifton continues and he says, With this special notice, we will scrutinize their hypothesis concerning telegony which is a superstitious belief that goes back hundreds of years. Before we get involved in this discussion, it would be helpful to see how the 1996 Webster's New Unabridged Dictionary defines it. While sometimes it is advisable to refer to an older dictionary, in this case, with the many advances in the knowledge of anatomy, or I would say in biology, a newer one would be more advantageous. 
and he offers the definition of telegony from the Webster's New Unabridged Dictionary. And it's a former belief that a sire can influence the characteristics of the progeny of the female parent and subsequent mates. And now Clifton provides another definition from the Reader's Digest Great Encyclopedic Dictionary, published in 1986. Telegony, biology. The alleged influence of a previous sire on the progeny of the same mother from subsequent impregnation by other males. Now, I remember that when I first proofread this essay for Clifton, it compelled me to spend a great deal of time in the library researching the biological processes involved in the reproductive system to determine whether telegony was really a possibility. The first I had read of it was in 1997, when I read Dan Gaiman's book, The Two Seeds of Genesis 3.15. By this time, I had already rejected the premise of telegony on scriptural grounds. And when I researched it here in early 2003, I became confident that it must also be rejected on scientific grounds. I found it quite unfortunate that Wesley Swift, Dan Gaiman, and others had accepted the concept of telegony as being scientific, thereby giving clowns like Stephen Jones and Ted Wyland ammunition to use in order to try to discredit 2C line. This unscientific theory must be rejected. Lately there have been discoveries that cellular material from former male mates has been discovered or can be found in the brains and organs of women. This phenomenon has been labeled microchimerism from the words micro and chimera. Microchimerism is the harboring of small numbers of cells that originated in a genetically different individual. However, such microchimerism is suspected as a cause of certain diseases, and it is not a factor at all in changing the actual reproductive system of a woman, or the substance or the quality of her eggs. Before the discovery of such microchimerism was widely published in non-scientific sources, Clifton wrote a paper in 2009 titled Telegony, Fact or Fiction. We presented that essay in a podcast at Christagenia in February of 2016 and added a discussion of microchimerism at that time. Microchimerism is not proof of telegony, and in truth, there is no identifiable biological process through which telegony can occur. Now we know much more to refute the claims of telegony that Clifton did as he wrote this in 2003. But he refuted it then to the best of his ability, and he refuted it well. So here he continues and he says, In his 1978 book, 
The Babylonian Connection. Stephen E. Jones used telegony, along with many other spurious arguments, in an ambiguous attempt to discredit two seat line doctrine, thus exercising his skills as a master of deception, or a master of idiocy. At the time he was able to get by with that false premise, as it was just prior to the general awareness of startling new technology coming on the scene. On December 3, 1967, Dr. Christian Neithling Barnard of South Africa pioneered the first heart replacement. By 1968, nearly 100 heart transplants had been performed throughout the world. Some years later, the general public became aware of the need for anti-rejection drugs, when a recipient receives an organ transplant. This factor of immunity alone will destroy the telegony hypothesis. But there is much more evidence to show that Stephen E. Jones's conclusions on this are flawed. Let's take a look at his primary conclusion on page 85. Page 85 of his book, The Babylonian Connection. The reason, Clifton quoting Stephen Jones, the reason for including telegony in this discussion has been to relate it to the sexual interpretation of Genesis chapter 3. Those who teach that Eve's act was to have had sexual relations with and to have been impregnated, impregnated by a Negro, Satan, or anyone other than Adam, cast doubt on the purity of Abel or Seth, and indeed upon Eve herself. And thus we may even doubt the racial purity of the entire white race, including Jesus Christ himself. And that's the end of the quote from Stephen Jones. So Jones used the prospect of telegony to taint our view of the entire race if we insist that two seed line is true. But telegony is a belief based in junk science, which is not even science. So Clifton responds and he says, Had one followed Jones's scheming line of reasoning up to this point, one would have fallen disastrously headlong into his mental entrapment. Once he concocted his false premise, he was able to establish a perilous, erroneous, misleading conclusion, like pretzels and Swiss cheese. Jones's thesis is twisted and full of holes. In order to impress his readers and make himself appear to be an expert on a subject of telegony, Jones quoted from various publications predating the modern discovery of DNA and the intricate world of chromosomes. Nowhere did Jones address the modern-day study of genetics relating to DNA and chromosomes. Anyone having a basic understanding of today's developments in genetics can quickly detect Jones's unmitigated lies. In his book, The Babylonian Connection, on pages 75, I'm sorry, 77 to 85, Jones cites Trofim Lysenko, Conway Zirkel, Scheinfeld and Herbert Cooper, C.L. Redfield, V.A. Zelnin, and Dr. Austin Flint.
Inciting these men and their opinions, Jones uses some very biased quotations. I had before me the 11th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, published in 1910, which has an unbiased account of telegony. In volume 26, on pages 509 and 510, and in volume 13 on page 354. This encyclopedia cites nearly the same men, incidences, and observations on cattle breeding as Jones does, but with many conclusions to the contrary. While cattle breeding wasn't the exact science in the 1800s as it is today, with the knowledge of DNA and chromosomes. Nevertheless, they carried on experimental breeding under controlled conditions, proving the theory of telegony to be false. Interestingly, many of the ideas about telegony during that period were coming from Charles Darwin, the inventor of evolution. In this same encyclopedia, in volume 26, On page 509, it says the following. Darwin says, It is worth notice that farmers in South Brazil are convinced that mares, which have once borne mules, when subsequently put to horses, are extremely liable to produce colts striped like a mule. And that's the idea behind telegony that the mare will have, the new offspring of the mare will have characteristics of both the current father, the current mate, and the mate from the past. The mate from her first or second or third, from her first pregnancies, I should say. Continuing with Clifton's citation, Baron de Parana, on the other hand, says, I have many relatives and friends who have large establishments for the rearing of mules, where they obtain from 400 to 1,000 mules in a year. In all of these establishments, after two or three crossings of the mare and the ass, the breeders cause the mare to be put to a horse. Yet a purebred foal has never been produced resembling either an ass or a mule. In other words, that's a witness from the 19th century that refutes the idea of telegony. Now I must say that the only ass in this equation is really Stephen E. Jones. The arguments presented in Britannica are typical of what happens when unknowns are judged on mere opinions rooted in speculation. Continuing with Clifton's citation from Britannica, The prevalence of the belief in telegony at the present day, meaning before 1910, because that's when this was published, is largely due to a case of supposed infection reported to the Royal Society in 1820 by Lord Morton, evidently a British nobleman, a chestnut mare, after having a hybrid by a quagga, produced to a black Arabian horse, three foals showing a number of stripes. In one, more stripes were present than the quagga hybrid. The more, however, 
the case so intimately associated with the name of Lord Morton is considered, the less convincing is the evidence it affords in favor of, quote-unquote, infection. Stripes are frequently seen in high-caste Arabian horses, and cross-bred colts out of Arab mares sometimes present far more distinct bars across the legs and other zebra-like markings than characterize the subsequent offspring of Lord Morton's seven-eighths Arabian mare. In the absence of controlled experiments, there is therefore no reason for assuming Lord Morton's chestnut mare would have produced less striped offspring had she been mated with the black Arabian horse before giving birth to a quagga hybrid. To account for the stripes on the subsequent foals, it is only necessary, now that the principles of crossbreeding are understood before 1910, to assume that in the crossbred chestnut mare there lay latent the characteristics of the Cattiawar or other Indian breeds in which stripes commonly occur. And of course the chestnut mare would be a descendant of one of those Indian breeds, very likely. Now Clifton responds to this Britannic article and he says, This evidence is entirely opposite to what Jones tried to make it appear about Lord Morton's horses. In other words, Jones took half the data on the belief in telegony and published the half which was favorable to him. Clifton says, It is glaringly obvious from this last quotation that Stephen E. Jones has taken the same position as the infamous Charles Darwin. Both of their wives were married to asses. In turn, all of the other anti-seedliners, in reading and believing Jones's book, like Wyland and Company, have followed suit. This is to be expected. (laughs) This is to be expected, as Clifton has already shown several times in this series, that all of these anti-seedliners merely mimic one another. Jones, Brueggemann, Wyland, Jack Moore, they all just copied each other's arguments. At this early time, this Britannica article has refuted the concept of telegony by presenting balanced witnesses. However, the sad part, the really sad part, is that Wesley Swift, Dan Gaiman, and others also accepted telegony and made up even bigger stories explaining how it does not affect our entire race. We must put all of this childish childishness aside. Telegony does not give some horses their stripes, but it certainly is horse manure. Continuing with Clifton, he says, returning to the Encyclopedia Britannica of 1910, the 11th edition on page 510, we read the following under the heading Telegony and Dogs. And he quotes, Breeders of dogs are, if possible, 
more thoroughly convinced of the fact of telegony than breeders of horses. Nevertheless, Sir Everett Malaise, a recognized authority before 1910, has boldly asserted that after nearly 30 years' experience, during which he made all sorts of experiments, he had never seen a case of telegony. Recent experiments support Malaise's conclusion. Two of the purest breeds at the present day are the Scottish Deerhound and the Dalmatian, or spotted carriage dog. A Deerhound, after having seven pups to a Dalmatian, was put to a dog of her own breed. The result was five pups, because bastards multiply more quickly. The result was five pups, which have grown into handsome hounds without the remotest suggestion of a previous Dalmatian mate of their dam, meaning their mother. Clifton then makes a parenthetical note that there are more such incidences cited by the article. So basically, controlled experiments looking for telegony could not find it occurring. By the best scientific methods of the time, telegony is dog poop as well as horse manure. Returning to Clifton, he says continuing with the Britannica article on page 510, Experiments with cats, rabbits, mice, with sheep and cattle, with fowls and pigeons, like the experiments with horses and dogs, fail to afford any evidence that offspring inherit any of their characters from previous mates of the dam. In other words, they entirely fail to prove that a female animal is liable to be so influenced by her first mate, however she is subsequently mated. The offspring will either in structure or disposition give some hint of the previous mate. In other words, telegony doesn't happen from observation in controlled experiments telegony is not detectable let's put it that way Clifton now concludes now that we have substantial testimony offsetting and overriding Stephen E. Jones's fraudulent claims let's examine the process by which this hypothetical telegony according to his book is supposed to take place Jones claims the following quotation is taken from Applied Trophology, the name of a journal I will get to momentarily. I will explain it in a few minutes. This in turn, Clifton says, was supposedly translated into English from Russian by a Bennett McCutcheon from Arizona State University. During the period leading up to 1978, when Jones was writing this book, exchange of information with the Soviet Union was rather scarce because of the imposed Iron Curtain. Thus, Jones was quite safe in presenting alleged documentation from that area, for who could check on its authenticity? After all, how many people are going to try to find a document on the topic of telegony, 
telegony in an inaccessible land written in a foreign language and then have it translated into English. According to Jones, on page 80 of his book, this article was marked Circulation Restricted to Professional Use. Generally, when a document is translated from one language to another, the flow of words are irregular and a bit difficult to read. Strangely, this alleged translation is very smooth and very easy to read. From his description, it is evident this article was never in any book or circulated by any recognized authority. And now I must say, to Jones's credit, we did locate a facsimile PDF copy of the publication in question, and it is in part labeled as Jones had claimed. We discussed this document at length when we presented Clifton's more recent paper, Telegony Factor Fiction, in February of 2016. We will only discuss it briefly here. This paper, Applied Trophology, is not a peer-reviewed scientific journal. Rather, Applied Trophology was a public relations publication for a food supplement manufacturer called Standard Process Laboratories, a company which is still in business today. Regardless of the nature of its articles, this is hardly a valid source for unbiased and academic scientific information. It's like finding out how the world works from reading Amway catalogs. Now Clifton continues to discuss Jones's presentation of this spurious material and rather reluctantly he says anyway this is what that reputed article allegedly said quoting page 82 of Jones's book in pregnancy the rapid cell division promotes the release of greater than normal quantities of protomorphogens into the blood from the embryo and the maternal gonad becomes loaded up with embryo blueprints, as it were, which causes subsequent germ cells of the female to be contaminated with the blueprints of the father, for all embryo protomorphogens are one-half duplicates of the genes of each parent. And that sounds like horse manure. It is obvious these protomorphogens circulating in the maternal blood influence repair and reconstruction to a tremendous extent. It will be obvious that this presence of paternal blueprints in the blood of a female who has had a child by one husband and subsequently remarries, the children of the later marriage will be carrying characteristics of both male mates and that's all straight bullshit. Then, Clifton says, Jones's comments on that quotation, I'm sorry, Jones comments on that quotation by stating, and he quotes, when this newly fertilized cell begins to divide itself and grow, they say, there is a subsequent release of some protomorphogens into the blood of the mother, and thus the paternal genes could have 
a definite effect upon the mother herself and all subsequent offspring. Now the word trophology is used to describe the study or science of nutrition, as its Greek origin actually suggests. This is what I said in response to this, this same quotation. Clifton had had included this same quotation in his pamphlet, Telegony Fact or Fiction. This is what I said in response to that in my 2016 presentation of that paper. Standard Process Laboratories does mention protomorphogens in some of their product literature. But these protomorphogens are glandular extracts, which they market commercially with the claim that they are necessary to direct the metabolic processes, growth and repair of all living tissue. According to a website called RethinkingCancer.org, which defined protomorphogens for us. There is no indication that these protomorphogens have anything to do with reproduction or that cell food, because that's what they are, cell food can change the nuclear DNA of a cell. If that were true, we would all have become bananas or pineapples 7,500 years ago. The claims which Jones makes or repeats in this article are actually quite alien to the current marketing materials for protomorphogens currently found at standard process labs. And that could be easily investigated on the internet. Returning to Clifton, he responds to Jones's citation, and he says, It's at this point that Jones really blows his argument and exposes his ignorance. It's common knowledge that there is no connection between the mother's blood and the embryo or fetus. The fetus makes its own blood. The only use of the umbilical cord between the mother and fetus is for nourishment and oxygen in one direction and the elimination of waste products in the other. As the mother has an entirely different immune system than the fetus, the mother's immune system would reject and destroy any part of the fetus or the or the other way around. All of this bulmanor, Clifton's phrase, all of this bulmanor on the part of Jones is nothing more than conjecture. Yet he finds those who agree and support his finagling. The Collier's Encyclopedia, published in 1980 on Volume 2, on page 174, under the article Anatomy, Human, the Reproductive System, says that there is no, there usually is no continuity between the mother's blood and that of the embryo or fetus. Clifton responds and he says, this is common knowledge and is found in many medical-related publications. The definition of continuity is the state or quality of being continuous or a continuous or connected whole. The definition of trophology, and here Clifton has trophoblast rather than trophology in parentheses, 
From the 1985 Webster's New Universal Unabridged Dictionary is embryology, the layer of extra-embryonic ectoderm that chiefly nourishes the embryo or develops into fetal membranes with nutritive functions. And Clifton says, notice it's fetal membranes and not tissue of the mother. Jones and all those anti-seed liners use some of the most distorted arguments I have ever heard. Now, Clifton's conclusions here are correct. But here Clifton evidently defined not trophology, but the closest word that he could find, which is trophoblast. Since trophology is a term that even now is usually only found defined in specialized medical dictionaries, we are certain that Clifton did not find it in the dictionaries he used when this was written. He nevertheless makes a correct conclusion that the nutrition of mother or infant has nothing to do with the genetic character of either mother or infant. So in a rather exasperated tone, Clifton says, well, let's continue. Again, Jones uses Darwinian logic on pages 83 and 84 of his book, The Babylonian Connection, where he quotes Dr. Austin Flint's textbook of human physiology. When Jones comments, quoting Dr. Flint, Dr. Flint then commented on the belief that when a man and a woman had been married to each other for long periods of time, they began to resemble each other. Melissa, we're getting divorced if that happens. This phenomenon is called saturation. Dr. Flint asked of telegony, may we not have here the explanation of the fact which has frequently been pointed out that husband and wife showed a tendency to grow like each other, both physically and mentally, the resemblance after a long (laughs) married life being sometimes very striking. And of course I have to say that this is an old wives tale an archaic term for what is now called an urban legend. Although it is possible for a husband and wife to go through similar biological changes if they both have the same diet and habits. For instance, a couple who spend their time together eating junk food and watching television will grow fat together. They won't really come to resemble each other. They'll both come to resemble basketballs. And an active couple with a healthy diet will grow lean together. But couples do not really start to look like one another after any length of time. Unless, of course, they are of closely related genetics in the first place, as it is fitting for them to be according to our custom. Two married Irish people will end up like looking like two old married Irish people. <laughs> Now Clifton responds to Jones's ridiculous assertions and he says, Do you comprehend the inference of what is being said here? Both Flint and Jones are implying that gradually the genetics of the couple are changing until they are alike. 
Can you understand the implications here? Well, if we understand the mechanics of intercourse, surely, with this hypothesis, only the wife's genetics could change to that of the husband's. Or could it be that the husband is affected genetically by kissing? Surely Judah, being married to the Canaanite woman Shua for several years, didn't take on her Canaanite features. This convoluted hypothesis suggests that the wife loses the genetics of both her father and mother and gradually changes to that of her husband. Now if that isn't Darwinism, I don't know what is. For a moment, let's take a look at what happens at conception. Science knows today that each single cell of the human body has two sets of 23 chromosomes, or a total of 46. I will now quote the World Book Encyclopedia, Volume 9, page 192. Every human body, cell, contains two sets of 23 chromosomes. These two sets look very much alike. Each chromosome in one set can be matched with a particular chromosome in the other set. Egg cells and sperm cells have only one set of 23 chromosomes. These cells are formed in a special way and end up with only half the number of chromosomes found in body cells. As a result, when an egg and a sperm come together, the fertilized egg cell will contain the 46 chromosomes of a normal body cell. Half of the chromosomes come from the mother and half from the father. Clifton says, we can clearly see that every cell in our bodies contains these same two sets of 23 chromosomes. Further, one set is found only in the male sperm and the opposite set found only in the female egg. And before continuing, I must add to this that while a male develops sperm throughout his lifetime, a baby girl is born with all of her eggs already developed in a womb. As soon as a baby girl is born, the next generation's eggs are already in her womb. So all of the genetic material which produces her contribution to her children is already intact. And there is no known biological process which changes the genes found in each of those 100,000 or more ova. Clifton continues and he says, In essence, both Flint and Stephen E. Jones are intimating that somehow one or both parties of this marriage lose the 23 chromosomes each of their parents contributed to their genetic makeup. Such a thing would only create greater complications as conception starts with one united cell containing 46 chromosomes, 23 from each parent. As these cells divide and redivide, they are directed to become various tissue, such as muscle, heart, brain, bone, etc. In doing this, every cell making up the body has the same genetic code built into it as was in the original cell, half from the father and half from the mother. Are Jones and Flint trying to suggest 
that there is some kind of device that goes through all the millions of cells and gradually changes their DNA makeup from their original genetic code and does it in synchronization. I find that idea fantastically unrealistic. Does this device somehow trade the wife's chromosome she got from her two parents in exchange for the chromosomes of her husband's two parents? Well, this seems to be the impetus of their intent. If what Flint and Jones are implying is true, at what point does a man's wife become his sister? And at what point in time does that married couple discontinue having normal sexual lawful sexual relations and start to commit unlawful incest. Surely, if a wife takes on the genetic makeup of her husband, she would be genetically equivalent to his sister. And I would have to add that maybe she would even be equivalent to his brother, since all of his genes contain male chromosomes and not female. So even the sex of the wife must change. You might marry a woman, and in 40 years you're sleeping with a copy of yourself that's a man. In that case, a man could not possibly avoid being a sodomite. So why would he ever stay married? Jones's theory, and I don't care how many doctors Flint has, it's harebrained. It's ridiculous. Clifton continues and he says, moreover, Eventually, by that hypothesis, one or the other of that couple could receive an organ transplant from the other without requiring anti-rejection drugs. Which brings us to the subject of organ transplants. Before we consider that, let's first look into DNA. Here is what the 1980 Collier's Encyclopedia said 22 years ago in volume 4 page 180 the gene theory states that the characteristics of each generation are transmitted to the next by the units of inheritance known as genes the genes are composed of deoxyribonucleic acid or DNA the large complex molecules of DNA are made up of four kinds of subunits called nucleotides, which are arranged in a double helix. The information in each gene resides in a particular order of these subunits. Since each gene is composed of 10,000 or so nucleotides, arranged in some specific sequence, there is a very large number of possible combinations of nucleotides and therefore a large number of different sequences representing different bits of genetic information. The information in each gene is transmitted from one generation to the next by a code called the genetic code, which involves the linear sequence of the four nucleotide units making up the gene. In each cell generation, the gene undergoes replication so that when the cell divides, each of the two daughter cells gets an exact copy of the code. Also, in each cell generation, one or more transcriptions of the code may be made by which the genic or genetic information is used to regulate the assembly of a specific enzyme or protein. 
Now Clifton responds to this citation, and he says, It is overwhelmingly apparent the Almighty created us with a well-regulated genetic code which can only be violated through miscegenation, and once defiled, it can never be repaired. Our body cells are controlled by this genetic code, not by telegony. Ladies, you'll always be the genetic daughter, not son, of your father and mother, not your husband. Genesis 1.11 says the seed is in itself, after its kind. In other words, our Creator has placed safeguards within us to protect that genetic code. That is why when one receives an organ transplant, one must forever continue to take anti-rejection drugs to suppress one's immunity. The subject of the rejection process is quite complex. But the following from the 1980 Collier's Encyclopedia, volume 18, on page 219, under the topic of organ transplantation, will serve for this discussion. And quoting, Clifton says, When the donor and the recipient are identical twins or members of the same inbred line of animals, the procedure is known as isotransplantation. Transplants performed between two individuals of different species, or of the same species but not identical twins, are subject to a process known as rejection. Identical twins, being derived from a single ovum, or egg, are exactly alike in all their tissues, and therefore will accept tissue from each other without rejection. According to present concepts, the immunological reaction is called forth by the exposure of the recipient to certain substances that are present in or on the living cells of the donor organ but are lacking in the recipient. These substances are called histocompatibility antigens. Histocompatibility antigens are determined by histocompatibility genes in much the same way as an individual's hair color or iris color is determined. Each individual inherits a set of genes, basic units of heredity, and thereby antigens from each of the parents. Upon exposure to the donor's antigens, the recipient responds by recognizing the tissue as foreign. And as we spoke about, microchimerism earlier in this earlier in this presentation simply because foreign DNA was found in the brains or certain organs of women which seems to have belonged to previous mates doesn't mean that the DNA belonged to living cells it doesn't mean that at all and the cells very likely were not living they were probably killed off by the woman's immune system. Clifton continues and he says, This data is sufficient to demonstrate that if any sperm cells survived from a former sire and somehow found their way into the blood of the mother, they would be recognized as foreign 
and would be rejected by her immune system's response to them. Secondly, if somehow the sperm cells of that sire survived in the blood and managed to find their way to her egg supply, they could in no way alter the genetics of those eggs. One sperm cell or or a thousand isn't going to alter the genetics of a hundred thousand ova or oocytes from which the eggs break off and go and float down into the uterus. The 23 chromosomes of the male are paired to the 23 chromosomes of the female and are directly opposite each other. Therefore, there is no way the male sperm could modify the 23 chromosomes of the female. Under such a hypothetical condition, which Jones and Flint suggest, the chromosomes would be so misaligned and confused. If a next pregnancy were to occur, it would only result in a genetically deformed, disorderly mass of twisted flesh. We only have to look at Down syndrome for comparison. For this we will again use Collier's Encyclopedia, Volume 16, under Mongolism, which is now usually called Down syndrome. Remember this is an older encyclopedia. A development disorder characterized by mental retardation as well as by abnormalities of bone growth and other physical malformations. The disorder is characterized by the presence of physical traits that are normal at an early age of fetal development. Among these fetal traits are the narrow, slanting eyes which gives such cases a superficial, superficial is the important word there, resemblance to Asiatic races. Down syndrome actually has no racial connotations. but is a pathological condition that may occur in any human race. And under causes, although many factors have been proposed as causes of Down syndrome, and I don't know if this information has been updated since, I believe, 1980, it has now been established that persons with this disorder typically have 47 chromosomes instead of the normal 46. The occurrence of the additional chromosome results from an abnormality, an unidentified abnormality, I believe, in the process of reproductive cell formation. In the normal process of reproduction cell division, one member of each chromosome pair goes to each cell. In Down syndrome, the failure of one specific chromosome pair to separate, which is called non-disjunction, results in the occurrence of that particular chromosome in triplicate in the offspring. And Clifton comments on this phenomenon, and he says, and this is the point of this paper, of this section of the paper, if only one misplaced chromosome can cause that much havoc, consider the complications that would develop under Jones's imagined concept. And here we have it. The unfortunate occurrence of Down syndrome in people reminds us of how fragile 
and dependent upon perfection. The process of the birth of an entire child from a single sperm and egg combination really is. And if some catastrophic occurrence somehow mutated the genetics of every single egg in any particular woman, we can indeed imagine that the consequences for her offspring would be far, far worse than a case of Down syndrome. If one chromosome can cause that much havoc, imagine what would happen if a woman's eggs were randomly rewritten by the DNA of her lover's sperm. She would never have a normal child again. Clifton continues and says, for proof that Stephen E. Jones was using Darwinian theory in his The Babylonian Connection, on pages 77 through 85, endorsing the hypothesis of telegony. I will now quote a paragraph from The Etiology of Racism in Europe from an official website of the Turkish government. And I must make a note that the page is no longer available today. But I do believe that I have a copy of this article attached to our presentation of telegony, fact or fiction from February 2016. If not, then I think I have a copy of the article from another source. I don't really remember. This article says, or said, Later, when racist theories took hold of the scientific community, the racial inferiority of the Semites, which by which it really means Jews, was explained by the long-term adverse effects of their religion on the blood. This went so far as to revive telegony, which implied that the fetus engendered by a mongrel male in a pure-blood female modified the mother in its image in such a way that the later descendants of the same mother were also condemned to impurity. It is noteworthy that this idea was forwarded by Spencer and found support in many writings of Darwin. Hence the source of Hitlerian laws prohibiting mixed marriages, and I don't really believe that. Another consequence of Darwinian science was the reinforcement of heredity, promoting it to the rank of a universal law and greatly contributing to racist theories and practice, which of course is probably a good idea. A good idea. Clifton says, while we can agree to a small degree with this last quotation, we must differ somewhat with the last sentence, for Darwin was interested to a greater degree on environment affecting future generations rather than heredity. The reason for including it here is to show the Darwinian connection and his unproved theory of telegony. On one occasion, Darwin because he couldn't account for the many various features of a particular breed of cattle, said it was due to spontaneous variations. Based on modern DNA genetic science, it would be ridiculous to account for any variations in man or animal as somehow happening in such a haphazard way. Evidently Darwin, like today's 
anti-seedliners never read Genesis chapter 1 verse 12 where it says after its kind that's comparable to saying all the races came from Eve and as much as the anti-seedliners love Darwin's theories wait till they start spreading that one from all this you could see that when Stephen E. Jones spouts Darwinism loudly the rest of the anti-seedliners like an animal in heat in mating season probably an ass sniffing at the air, couples with, and purchases Jones's Brooklyn Bridge. Clifton using the term couples with as an allegory for having a strong belief in such a harebrained idea. In conclusion, <coughs> I'm sorry, in conclusion, Clifton discusses the rather harebrained opinions of Wesley Swift on this topic. Swift accepted telegony as fact, and he made up a tale to cover for two sea-line beliefs if telegony were to be accepted, or I should say, once telegony was to be accepted, because he did accept it. Clifton says, in response to people like Wesley Swift, and Dan Gaiman. There are many in Israel identity who point out that a woman must go through seven gestations after relations with another race in order to purify herself. I don't agree, as it insinuates that the first six children, although they are of Adamic or pure parentage, are no good. This is not true, and neither is there any evidence of there being six children between Abel and Seth. I would rather believe a waiting period would be necessary to see if any venereal diseases developed as a result of such a union. And of course, Wesley Swift did contrive such a story, and it is pure horse manure. Here we conclude our presentation of Part 18 of Clifton's series. If we, as a race, really seek to come to the truth, we must dispense of dog poop, horse manure, and every crazy scheme that is not supported by our scripture. The telegony theory is one such scheme, and both seedliners and anti-seedliners alike are responsible for the proliferation of a belief in such garbage throughout Christian identity. Two seed line is true. Telegony is bullshit. And the anti-seed liners are in bed with the enemy. Stephen Jones and Ted Wyland had better watch that their noses aren't growing as they cuck for their husbands the Jews. Or perhaps as their genes aren't changing as they cuck for their husbands the Jews. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh the God of Israel. And good night. Tomorrow night we're going to speak to the gentleman who actually first gave Clifton their version of Ted Wyland's tapes, Eve, did she or didn't she, and started this whole mess. <laughs> Praise Yahweh and good night.